2: Palantir is a software company specializing in data analytics, gathering intel and using AI to help humans interpret it. Palantir got its start working with defense and intelligence agencies, even helping locate Osama bin Laden's hideout. And it's adding a growing number of commercial companies to its customer list. Lesser known, the work in space.
0: What's interesting about it is, Palantir, at the start, isn't a rocket company, it's not a satellite company, Um, you know, we're a data company first. And so we kind of got pulled into the space industry.
2: Palantir was co-founded by a group of entrepreneurs, including Peter Thiel and Alex Karp, who saw a national security need to supply the government with software, even as other Silicon Valley startups steered clear. It has since extended those services to other industries, including space, as a proliferation of satellite constellations has meant more data and more need to parse through it more quickly. I spoke with Katie Ward and Anand Gupta, who are spearheading the company's space work, about those capabilities which have taken on a greater sense of urgency amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space.
0: Yeah, uh, we've been on a bit of a journey, actually, in our in our space work um, over the last several years. Um, and what's interesting about it is Palantir, at the start, isn't a rocket company. It's not a satellite company. Um, you know, we're a data company first. And so we kind of got pulled into the space industry. And actually, Katie got uh, started with some of our first work there. Um, and so she probably can tell you the story of how we got our foothold in um, first, this kind of interesting problem that they call space domain awareness, and then that's gone on to some of the other things that we've now grown, gone to become a part of the space, space ecosystem, both government and now in this you know massively growing uh, commercial space industry. But Katie, you want to talk a little bit about our space awareness, domain awareness work?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a good kind of baseline too, to expand on what, what Anand will speak to in terms of AIP and, and kind of the, the work we're doing with Meta Constellation. So I started working in, in the space domain, I was previously working more in the Army Intel space um, with the Space Force as that service was being you know, created, working with General Raymond and the idea of like what does a digital first service actually mean? Um, and how do they work with commercial partners like Palantir, like other integrators to be a data first, digital first organization? So really, when I got started with the Space Force with Palantir as like a data as a service, uh, we were really focusing on space domain awareness, which you can really just think about traffic management of assets in space. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States has the biggest ground radar network in the world. So for the most part, it's the authoritative source in, in, in space traffic. Um, and you can imagine that the scale of that data is like pretty astronomical. You've you know tens of thousands of things in space. And then Propagating how those things are moving is is really challenging. Um, So that was kind of the base case that we worked with at the Space Force to just get the hands around the data and kind of build out a more kind of digital first catalog for that traffic management. So that was kind of our intro there. Obviously, we've expanded into much more kind of complex problem spaces, particularly, you know, kind of as it becomes a more and more contested and congested space, uh, which is where like Meta Constellation and Anon's work really has started to take shape. Yeah, so I I'm, think this is mm-hmm.
0: j- just to, the thought there is like, this is a thing that happens in all of our work across industries, commercial and government. Um, we get pulled in as kind of the operating system for whatever the domain is. And in space, it was, you know, you start at that base level of how do we keep space safe and resilient? That's the traffic control function. But then when you start to put that operating system in, you get pulled into all these other interesting problems that people start to say, hey, we, wait a second, we have this, you know, this other problem with uh, how do you get surveillance or how do you get situational awareness, stuff like that.
2: Mm. So I want to get into all of that, but first, I just want to go back to something you said, Katie. So does that mean all of these thousands of objects and all the debris that's orbiting the Earth right now, that's been getting so much attention, especially in light of the fact that we saw even more debris created with that uh, anti-satellite weapon test by Russia back in November, all of that data is being aggregated through Palantir right now? Is that what you're telling me?
1: Yes. Obviously, there are a lot of vendors, providers, um a lot of partners that play a role in that entire kind of like mm-hmm. custody chain uh but yeah for the most part every piece i think size or, like size larger than a softball uh, is getting tracked um in kind of our like data platform wow that's amazing um, okay so anand
2: let's talk metaconstellation then
0: i mean so it's kind of funny because uh, our experience metaconstellation uh is really born out of partly being that operating system for the users in the field Um, which is always our story, but, uh, for me, it's pretty personal because I spent a lot of my time, um, in our R and D work, particularly with us special operators and this is continuing thing that you hear from users in that community. But frankly, in kind of every community, even the commercial world where they say, Hey, I can't get enough situational awareness of something on the ground. I can't get enough images of, you know, a key facility that I care about or a place where I think there might be violent extremists operating or some piece of military equipment that I need to monitor and keep track of. Um. And we kept hearing that over and over and over again. And at the same time, uh, you know, we were looking at the SpaceX launch manifests every month, right? Those launches are going on all the time. We'd see, you know, tens or hundreds of Earth observation satellites going up or hundreds of communication satellites going up. And we were sort of stuck there. We were thinking, how is it that there's a user in the field who needs an image tomorrow of a key location and they can't get it? And yet there are more and more imaging satellites going into space. Like, what is that? And I think that's that was really the genesis of MetaConstellation was how do we connect the wide variety of incredible commercial and government uh, sensors that are going up in space, the proliferating constellations. We're going from, you know, you know I think 20 years ago, there were probably a handful of these things uh, imaging the planet. And now there are hundreds of these things, right? Like something like 800 that you can really tap into. Uh, and you say, how do we put that in front of a user every single day um, to solve a hard problem, right? And whatever the problem they have... Instead of forcing the complexity of the data or the complexity of the problem on that pilot or special operator or planner, you say, software can help you get an answer to the question you actually have using all of the space uh, assets that are up there. Um, So it was kind of this like we got pulled into it and then we started to realize there's this incredible complexity that we could help with.
2: I mean, it seems so obvious when you lay it out that way. Um, But the fact that it hadn't happened before now, I mean, how complicated has it actually been to make this how a reality?
0: Yeah, it turns out there are three cascading problems when you start to unpack what you need to do to get that special operator their insight. The first thing is there are an incredible number of sensors now in space, and you have to figure out how to integrate with all of them. So the classic Palantir thing for us is integrate with every different system that's out there regardless of the differences between them or the sensor complexity. Make sure that you can actually say, yeah, I want satellite A and satellite B to go take an image of of this thing. Um, But it turns out when you solve that problem, you actually create a hundred new problems for that user because Hmm. you've now taken a hundred times more photos than they ever know know what to do with. You know, these photos are not small. They're hundreds of kilometers by hundreds of kilometers, right? Um, And you're saying, hey, I want you to find, you know, planner, I want you to find a needle in this haystack of an image where the needle is like a, a surface air missile site. Um, and so that takes them hours. And so you've given them 100 hours of work just by taking lots of photos. So that turns out to be also be a mistake. And so the second interesting problem you have to solve is how can I have machines, how can I have machine learning models, computer vision technologies, AI, actually weed through all of that imagery, all of that sensor data, and find the thing that the user actually cares about? And then the third problem that actually creates is that's all great. And that gets a user an answer to a question of where is that missile site? But, um, it's not useful to the user if you give them that answer after 36 hours, mm. uh, that's too slow, right? They need that answer in minutes or hours, um, at worst. And so the third hard problem you have to unlock is then how do I do that as quickly as possible? And it turns out, uh, the physics of the world and the physics of space mean that you can't really do that processing on the ground. You, you can, but it'll take longer. But if you can do it in space, then you've unlocked the difference between giving a user an hour and an answer 12 hours later and uh, giving that user the answer in 30 minutes, which is where we really want to be.
1: Hmm.
2: So, so how many, and I realize that maybe you can't disclose all of the names, but how many different companies then are you working with to be able to collect, collect that data to then be able to apply that AI as you disseminate that data?
0: Yeah. So our approach in this space has been to become part of the ecosystem and work with everyone we can. Um, and so we've we've been really fortunate to have some incredible space partners. Um, I can't give you the exact number, but some of them are actually have done uh, some great publicity around the work that they've been able to do with us. So, you know, big companies um, and small, some of the, the fast growing companies like Black Sky and Sadologic, um mm-hmm. have done awesome work with us on Constellation. And we're constantly expanding uh, the network of providers. We think and I think all the companies feel this, um, by bringing more of that capability to users, everyone benefits, right? It's more demand for everyone who's trying to, you know, put up a new constellation. And for the users in the field, it's just more insight for them. Um, So it's a growing network. Uh, I'm excited that over the next year, we'll probably
2: double it in size. Wow. Okay. Katie, I want to get you into this conversation as well, since you have been working so closely with the Space Force, for example. Um, What does this mean to those government customers that Palantir is working with, especially given the fact that we do have a conflict playing out in Eastern Europe right now.
1: Yeah, I think um, the fact that one of Anand's three problems was not uh, traffic management or knowing where things are in space kind of speaks to the level of effort, um, the little level, level of service that the U.S. government provides both with the Space Force and, and kind of you know other uh, agencies like NOAA or NASA um, help, you know, private companies you know, manage conjunction, which is collision threat, understand where their assets are in space. So there's already kind of a huge um, effort that's kind of that foundation for all of these these vendors kind of coming online and and putting their constellations into space. So that's one direction where the government obviously is, and, and the work we're doing with them helps enable a lot of these new workflows. And then what we're trying to do now is close that loop, right? So government's providing a foundational capability. You have, you know, other vendors kind of disrupting this industry, and then how do we have the government then benefit again um, from those contributions? So a lot of the leaders that we work with, particularly when there are either contested spaces or or really we want the decision loops to be as short as possible, um, they're looking at all of the options available to them. And so when we can tie that whole chain of custody from, hey, you guys are authoritative in terms of like tracking where these assets are in real time, why aren't you enabling or using their capabilities for resiliency with satellite comms, resiliency with imagery? Um, and how do we kind of build trust and broker that relationship between these emerging technologies and, you know, an organization that has pretty much owned the space domain for the last few decades and has to kind of rethink um, how they work with commercial providers and think more about, you know, what does resiliency mean to them? And the fact that they don't have to own the entire chain to have a resilient kind of network, um, and so it's been really powerful to have those foundational conversations and then transition to like what what's that next disrupting technology that can help us, um, you know, in this contested warfighting domain.
2: Yeah, I mean the resiliency conversation is really a fascinating one, and this idea of not having to own the entire chain. I was I actually spoke to General Raymond from the Space Force just earlier. Uh, this week, and we talked a lot about resilient architecture, since I know it's such a key priority um, for that service. Um, and it, it, the, the ironic thing about it, to sort of get back to your point, Katie, is that when you have so many different commercial companies putting up so many different types of constellations, and now when you have something like this Ukraine-Russia conflict playing out where some, where some satellites were getting reports are getting jammed, you have that resiliency by having so many different competitors with so many different assets in space that you're able to keep collecting that data even if some assets do go offline.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and also like whether it's jamming, whether it's space weather, uh, whether yeah. there's a collision or another kinetic event, you know, some of these things are unfortunately like very inevitable. So there is kind of an inherent uh, dependency chain. You know, if, if you have a, a satellite explode or decay and collide with another asset, that chain of events There's no way that, you know, the debris is only gonna hit American assets or only gonna hit private assets, right? It's everybody's out there. um, And there is kind of this collaboration that needs to happen um, to make sure that we reduce risk um, as much as possible. And so there kind of needs to be a lot of collaboration And it's a a very challenging data problem. It's very challenging to imagine what, you know, kind of an exponential debris scenario could look like. Mm -hmm. And we kind of help quantify that risk with our customers. And it it makes the conversation a lot more fruitful than just a lot of hypothesizing about what that scenario could look like.
2: Yeah, I mean, and not in some ways, it feels like there's this real-time case study Playing out for better or worse, given the geopolitical situation right now, and being able to sort of have this be realized as quickly and as effectively and as successfully as possible, um, and to the extent you can talk about it, uh, I wonder if you could share a little bit about the role that Meta Constellation is playing in all of this intelligence sharing that we're seeing across across Western nations right now.
0: Yeah, well, well, I can't speak to the specific customers. I, I think the use cases. Is- are like deeply resonant. And you're actually seeing some of this stuff play out in the press, um, in, in in the public media, which is incredible. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think if you think about the d- diversity of problems that now need to be solved for anyone working in in the Ukraine-Russia crisis, right? whether it's our, uh, the US's NATO partners, um, making sure that they have deterrence or that uh, any of the NGOs and organizations that are working to make sure that refugees and evacuees from Ukraine are able to make it safely to uh, where they need to go, uh, th- those problems are constantly shifting. It, it looks like something, you know, between one day looking at what are the air defenses that uh, could be threats to um, to aviation in that region, and then another day looking at things like border control points to understand how backed up are those checkpoints and how many people are waiting to get across a, a checkpoint, or looking at the lines of communication, looking for damage and bridges that might prevent Um, either military forces, but honestly, civilians as well from moving across across the area. And so what's really exciting to me is because of all those diversity of problems, you have to take that more resilient approach and that more heterogeneous approach of cross sensors. You say, well, you know, to look at this bridge damage, I'm going to use this lower resolution sensor that's more available and then maybe to find this particular piece of equipment or to engage in some kind of search and rescue activity, I want to specialize and use a specific sensor that's maybe more scarce. And so, um, we're, we're really excited by meta constellation being used in those use cases, um, to solve many different problems, not to solve one problem, but as the needs change day after day after day, uh, an analyst in the field can say, Hey, I actually need to pivot. Uh, you know, we've seen user groups in this problem space, pivot their areas of interest every single day, hmm. switching tens of different things that they're looking at, because the, the situation on the ground is constantly changing. Um, and then, you know, the delivery of insight, uh, you know, if you're shifting your, your areas of interest every day, you have to get that insight within the six hours or 12 hours, you need, you know, that that you need to make a decision. And that's been, um, that's been really cool to watch, you know, whether it's, hey, the fact that this bridge was destroyed means that we have to change our posture and the way that we work with our evacuees communicate with our evacuees, that's like a really important and special problem to be a, to be a part
2: of. So uh, I know we're talking, you know, we have that conversation and, and you just give an example that, you know, sort of more from, I guess, the military or intelligence standpoint, um, how much, how much is the demand coming from government versus coming from potentially commercial uh, customers as, as well right now, and I guess is one feeding the other. When you, if you're a commercial customer, you see, you know, this is intelligence, and this is this is an aggregation of data that is um, good enough for the government. So I want it too.
0: Yeah, actually, the thing that's special about our work with Meta Constellation in the commercial sector is it, It's actually growing, not just from the fact that commercial industry sees that the space industry is growing, but actually from our existing work being part of big, complex organizations. So uh, in the energy sector, for example, you know, we've been the operating system for kind of large energy organizations for for many years now. And so they're starting to think, wait a second, Palantir is able to integrate in additional sensors for me to get insight on my problem. Absolutely, let's get that into our broader chain. So just to give you a, like a really tangible example, um, we've been exploring a couple of use cases that involve greenhouse gas, emit, greenhouse gas emissions from um, offshore wells. And the idea is if you can detect... You know emissions like methane early, um, that allows you as a person who's maintaining an oil well to quickly change the operations of that well to conduct the maintenance you need to do to shut things down if you need to um, dynamically right well before you've caused an environmental problem or or, or even worse. And so, um, but if you think about that decision chain, it only works because not just because you're able to sense from space, hey, that that event has happening, but actually couple it to a digital twin of your oil well and say, hey. You know, the reason that we're leaking methane is because this particular subsystem is behaving in a way that we weren't expecting. And so that's where uh, it's been able, we've been able to couple meta-constellation to these decisions. And I think just if you zoom out to the industry for a second, you know, I think it's a truism across industry that so far, a huge proportion of the dollars going into the remote sensing are coming out of the government. But I think that's not because there isn't commercial demand. It's because connecting that data coming from space to a decision that's really valuable for a business, energy business, and aviation business is really hard. And that's where some of the technology we're building now is designed to bridge that gap.
2: Which of course raises the question, uh, and I'll put this to either one of you, how much is this type of technology, this type of software and AI experience now driving down the cost of being able to collect this data from space?
0: Yeah. I mean, Just to, to, one of the craziest things to me is, um, and actually where the edge part is maybe the most important. uh, If you think about a space operation, uh, remote sensing operation, one of the biggest complex pieces of that operation is not just taking the images, it's downlinking entire images from space. And the bandwidth you need to do that and the ground station infrastructure you need to do that is massive, right? But imagine the following. Imagine if instead of downlinking, Hundreds of megabytes or gigabytes of imagery from space, radar images or so on. Instead, we, you can run an algorithm in space that looks for the thing that you want. So you don't care about every tree in an image or every you know every pixel that contains water. You just care about that one missile site or that one bridge or that one piece of equipment. Um, and if I can find that thing and take that little piece of that image, right, a couple of kilobytes, and download that from space to the Earth directly to you, I can do that faster. And I can do that way more cheaply from a ground infrastructure perspective. And that ch- totally changes the cost paradigm. It means you can even time slice uh, the way the sensors work in a more cloud-like way. And so when we've been able to do, we've actually got this working in our first iterations, working with um, a couple of companies. And we've got algorithms in space that detect ships and that will soon detect different types of land cover and different types of infrastructure, and then download that tiny amount of data, data directly into the field, which just totally changes the... The ground segment cost paradigm.
1: Hmm.
2: Katie, I want to get your thoughts on this too.
1: Yeah, I think the the part of my work that I'm re- I'm really excited about is. Um, making sure that those models are actually kind of doing what we need them to do to to kind of get to this this future state that that Anand is painting. There are some like very effective models. I think ships are a good one because spotting something in an ocean is is much easier than spotting a helicopter amongst palm trees. And so I think the work that we have and kind of we bring forward of of being a data integrator that has experience with, with kind of the large compute that it takes to run and test and train models And then also just our our experience with bringing customers along on the journey of what does it look like to modernize and leverage new technology and and use it to unlock um, new efficiencies, new entire businesses. And so I think I spend a lot of my time working with our customers, obviously mostly in the defense space, but of how they can have the right testing, the right evaluation in place to build trust with not only like satellite imagery providers, but also model vendors, other technologists that, that are are training kind of the way that we process this data, and because you have to have high trust kind of along that entire chain, whether it's the vendor itself, the imagery, um, making sure that you have kind of transparency into that entire process, because if you're making significant decisions based off of of the feedback you're getting, you want to have like radical transparency into what's going on, and I think. Palantir and the technology that we use really enables high visibility into each kind of component um, of that, you know, imagery analysis AI toolchain, and so that's something that I really enjoy um, using our technology to kind of like bring the customer along because it is it's a it's a lot of new technology. Like not only are you in space, but now we're talking AI. Uh, we're talking about AIP on satellites. It can definitely feel like a lot, um, and so talking the customers through and, and having them see the data in real time is really powerful. Hmm. So,
2: are you spearheading Warp Core as well, then, Katie? And if so, can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, uh, I was a big uh, part of of the Warp Core effort. You know, we're really proud of kind of that that operationally accepted capability for space domain awareness, um, and really excited about what that can unlock in terms of future work uh, with the Space Force, and then of course, all of the customers, whether they're commercial entities or, or government entities. So yeah, loved that, that project. I, I kind of am more now peripherally involved, um, but yeah, working with Kobayashi Maru and, and kind of that whole software as a service type capability that, that the Space Force is big on. Um, yeah, Warp Core will probably be one of my favorite projects that I've worked on, I imagine, for my whole career.
2: Can you speak to any of that? And I realize again, there's some limitations around this because we're talking about, you know, government customers. Um, but can you speak to any of, I guess, the use cases around around those capabilities?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think, like, like I stated earlier, the like space domain awareness problem and, and managing mm-hmm. that entire space catalog is very much within um, the realm of, of U.S. Space Force. Um, and so Warp Core being kind of a data as a service capability to Get that data safely um, and accurately to a variety of customers. Like I said, um, if if you're a private uh, commercial entity that has a satellite, you're, you're probably getting that orbital data in one shape or another from uh, WorkCore or the kind of like underlying um, space satellite network. Um, and so, really, if uh, it seems uh, generic, but if you're trying to figure out where something is in space, uh, course certainly played a role in that. Um, and making sure that the right data goes to the right people um, and to the right missions is is, is really important to us. And, and I think um, we've provided a good, a good solution. So we're having this
2: conversation. Um, and, I, and I'm just curious, do you feel like you have competitors in this field? Or do you feel like Palantir is sort of operating on its own, out there when it comes to this idea of data integration from space?
0: I mean, one of the interesting things about being an ecosystem player here is actually that we live amongst so many other players as a, a part of their architecture. So it's less that we're around we're around going and competing with a bunch of different companies. But we've talked a lot about our government work um, in space. The thing that's really interesting is adjacent to that. We've also done partnerships and actually uh, we're actually the software infrastructure for an increasing number of the uh, space companies that uh, did SPACs last year. So I mentioned Black Sky and Satellogic. Well, Calendar is part of their infrastructure as part of the ecosystem. So it's really interesting as more and more players come into the space, what we're noticing is we're able to work with more and more of them. Um, not in a competitive basis, but in a, like mm-hmm. a highly collaborative basis. Whether it's you know bridging government and commercial, as Katie Katie discussed for for safety purposes, or it's being infrastructure that accelerates their technology. You know if you're if you're a space company today um, and you're doing things like remote sensing or other types of sensing, Palantir's technology can help you build the right machine learning you need, or you're building new satellites for communications. Well, we have supply chain technology, and so it's less you know it's less that there's another company just being the operating system for all of these uh, new organizations coming up, at least as far as I've seen.
2: Okay, so just to follow on to that then, when you talk about being part of the infrastructure for these space companies, um, what does that actually entail? I mean, are you striking these partnerships and sort of involved from like quite literally the manufacturing of these satellites from the ground up where the sensors are concerned? Or is that something that you can sort of step in later to be able to connect?
0: So we've done both um, and, and it really depends on what these companies need. So in some cases, we're part of the supply chain infrastructure so that they can make sure that they're building satellites at the rate they want. If you're launching a proliferated Leo constellation, you want to launch a thousand satellites. Well, think about the complicated supply chain, especially in this environment that you need to make mm-hmm. sure that you have everything from the semiconductors you need to the optics you need to the you know, solar panels and another power electronics. Right? So that's one whole use case. Um, and that's something we've been able to do with some of the younger companies in the space who have to set up a supply chain very rapidly. Uh, separately from that, there are constellations that have been well established. I think I think of some of the Earth observation companies that I mentioned, and they you know they have 20 or 30 satellites in space already, and they're delivering imagery to customers. But for those guys, the thing that they're realizing is it's not enough to just deliver imagery. Imagery is really valuable. But if you can deliver insight on top of that inventory, right? If you have algorithms that can help solve a customer-specific problem, whether it's that methane problem I mentioned, or it's you know border control problem that I mentioned, um, then you're actually adding a lot more value. And so, uh, the thing we've been able to do with those companies is say, you know, your your tech team is excellent at the thing that they're doing. How can we help you get a head start on your machine learning journey, right? So uh, we've been able to enter in at, at various different stages, and then the one I'm most excited about in the near term. Uh, and into the future is um, we're actually able to now enable some of these companies to do the edge technology that we mentioned. So we're actually working with them to design the hardware that goes into their next generation of satellites that mm-hmm. enables them to do the edge AI work that we want to do um, to put more com- more co- complex algorithms in space. Actually, uh, we have a bunch of hardware going up um, on a launch in a couple of months now that uh, that's like one of our first forays there.
2: Wow, that's exciting. So just to wrap this up, I want to get some Closing comments from both of you, especially because we are having this conversation uh, with this backdrop of this conflict playing out in Eastern Europe right now, which has shined a light for better or worse uh, on some of the capabilities from space and whether it's the open source intelligence, whether it is the intelligence sharing that's happening between different countries right now in the midst of all of this, the key role that Palantir is playing in that. And I guess just a, a little bit about what that's meant for what you're doing on a daily basis and also how this potentially changes the way we see conflicts or geopolitical risks in general play out in the future now.
1: Yeah, I can I can kind of start start first here. I, I think the thing that I find you know incredibly motivating about our work and, and obviously your pride itself on being as close to kind of some of the most important problems in, in the current Geopolitical scape is, you know, unfortunately a heightened example of that, but I think it's really interesting to to help our customers, you know, kind of get left of conflict and and use data as a deterrence and really understand um, it's less about, you know, hoarding information and more about how do we rapidly generate insights and how do we partner with whether it be partner nations, partner companies, uh, industry, and and really unlock that kind of decision um, process. And how do we do that in a safe way, um, a secure privacy centric way. Um, And I think that seeing our work and kind of working with our partners to like rapidly respond to kind of a new near peer conflict where where decision and and timelines are, are really, you know, accelerated. Um, I think it's been really powerful. Our technology really is just there to help um, accelerate this Versus, you know, uh, we're not the experts in space, we know a lot. um, But really, the technology unlocks uh, the users and the operators and the partners, um, and has had, you know, really significant impact. Um, And we just hope that it's just exponential, um, the way that that our customers can better leverage this data moving forward.
0: I think, just to add on that, I think 20 or 30 years ago, what happened in space was kind of divorced from what happened on Earth, right? There were some fantastic science projects in space, a little bit of really esoteric military technology in space. Um, But as, as the space industry has massively grown over the last even five years or 10 years, as launches become cheaper, as there's more stuff in space doing more interesting things, we're noticing across the board that events on Earth really do create ripples in space, right? Whether it's the anti-satellite stuff that happened a couple of months before this Ukraine crisis kicked off, or it's the fact that now the things that are in space are so critical to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, those ripples go up and then things that happen in space really affect what happens on the ground. And um, the thing that we're very excited about, and and I think you know we're really excited about this whole ecosystem working on is trying to tie those things two together. How do we connect a user on the ground, a human being who needs to make a decision to all of that capability in space and all of the challenges of that capability? And then similarly, how do we make sure that, you know, as the space industry grows, it's growing in a way that helps people on the ground? I think that's like the this the, the kind of collaboration we are excited to facilitate. It's the place where the data is really important, but it's also the place where I think as new space technologies come in, uh, we'll, we'll have the most to add, right? Uh, I'm looking forward to there being, you know, thousands and thousands of new satellites in space, looking to new launch platforms, and I, and I really want those to help people on Earth um, as much as we can.
2: That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan.